Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I also had the experience that I couldn't separate when he was just being an asshole with what was happening with his brain. Because he had never said to me, I feel like my brain isn't functioning. He had never said, I fear I have a mental illness. Sheila Hamilton was working as a reporter in Portland, Oregon, when she met her charismatic, energetic, and brilliant future husband, David, at a coffee shop. But what Sheila didn't know was that there was another side of David that was battling a deep internal struggle with untreated bipolar disorder. And after many years, as his illness progressed, David's psychological pain worsened and became unbearable for him. I keep thinking like, what if I had just caught him earlier by saying no? If you don't get help, if you don't actually do something to really address the issues that you're having, I need to leave this marriage. We might have caught him. And I get really emotional thinking about that because once again, it's like the amount of responsibility that we can carry for another person's mental illness is pretty profound. Today on the show, we explore what it's like to be in a relationship with somebody who is living with unmanaged, undiagnosed mental illness. The impact of that illness on the caretaker and the painful reality of not being able to save the one you love. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser. Welcome to All The Wiser Podcast, where we share jaw-dropping stories of extreme adversity and the inspiring wisdom that comes on the other side of pain. We also donate $2,000 an episode to charity and celebration of our incredible guests. Before we get started, I want to thank everyone who donated to our Maya's Way fundraiser. We have been blown away by the generosity of Maya's friends, family, and our All the Wiser listeners. The money raised for Maya's Way will make a huge difference to other women under the age of 40 who are struggling with cancer as Maya did. If you'd like to donate, you can find the link in our bio on Instagram at All the Wiser Podcast. And thanks again for everyone who has donated. Now on to today's episode. And just a heads up to our listeners, we will be discussing suicide and mental illness today. So if this subject feels too sensitive or raw, you may wish to skip this episode. One of the many things I loved about this conversation with Sheila is her wonderful ability to paint a clear and descriptive picture of her life with David and all the signposts she encountered as her husband descended into mental illness. As someone who cares deeply about having brave and honest conversations about mental health and bipolar disorder, This episode is important to me. We talk about the notion of what it means to be a caretaker and love someone who is mentally ill, the struggle to separate the person from the illness, and the power of hope, and how important that message can be to carry someone who is in a place of suffering and darkness. And finally, we talk about just how common these conditions are and how better off we would all be as a society if we could talk more openly about them. And now, my interview with the wise and wonderful Sheila Hamilton. 
Sheila, welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you, Kimmy. It's just a pure joy to be with you. So I normally start our interviews with the backdrop of someone's childhood, sort of the beginning of the narrative arc. But today we're going to talk about David and your relationship with David and the loss of David. Mm. So I thought I would start with when you met him, you know, the story of your first meeting and your first impressions. People have told me that my face completely changes when I think about that day because that's how overwhelmed I was by his presence. I was a reporter for the ABC affiliate here in Portland, Oregon, and I was on a break and I walked into a coffee shop and was ordering a cappuccino when this guy came through the door and it was almost like the spring wind blew him in. Kimmy, he was so magnetic and so charismatic. I think every woman's head in that coffee shop turned toward him. He had like six rolled up plans under his arm and he was juggling a coffee cup because he always recycled his coffee cup. He never asked for a new one under his chin. And I was like, who is this man? He had so much energy and an electricity about him that I was just like, I have to find out more about this guy. And so as he was ordering his coffee, I said, I see that you're a builder and I really would love to have a deck built at my house. I didn't need a deck, (laughs) but I totally wanted to meet him. And he kind of like was, you know, disheveled and a little, you know, just like grabbing for a card or something. And he ended up barely finishing the deck, but that was the beginning of our life together. And he was so deep. He was such an interesting man. He had capacity like no other individual I'd ever met in my life before. He spoke three languages. He read three books a week. He raised chickens. He knew everything about mushrooms. He loved to ski. He loved, he'd been all over the world traveling for most of his life. He actually was one of the most evolved human beings that I'd ever known. When do you make the decision to build a life together. And, you know, I always think, you know, with marriage that there is a shared vision, right? Of what your future is going to look like as you begin your life together. So I'm curious about that time and and the life you envisioned together as you got married in those early years of marriage. Well, when I met him, I was already nearing my mid-30s. And so like a lot of women, I was already thinking about children and because he was so such a beautiful human being and had so much intellectual capacity, I almost immediately thought I'd like to have a family with this guy. He was so, I mean, it was an, he was an extraordinary man in terms of his kindness and in, in terms of his values. And in hindsight, what I would say to my younger self is you actually didn't engage him in the deep conversations that are necessary in order to have a really solid, stable life together. A lot of them were in my head. But at the time, I just assumed that he wanted a domestic life with a house and a picket fence and all of the things that I think most people want at some point in their life. And so I told him at one point after we dated for about six months that I was really serious about wanting children and that I was either going to have children with him or I needed to move on because at that point I felt like my clock was ticking. And I think at that point he was just sort of like, sure. I really don't believe that he had seriously ever considered marriage. I think if I could really be honest that in his mind, he probably knew something was really wrong with him and that the confines of a domestic union would probably kill him. And yet he was really in love with me and really in love with the stability that I brought and the ease that I brought to his life. And so I think he just was at that point agreeable. And he said, let's do it. Well, I think you just spoke to it a bit about the confines of marriage and his mental health. And in reading about your story and your relationship with David, it's clear that there are two different Davids, right? Yeah. So if you can juxtapose, you're now married, who are the different Davids and how do they show up for you Mm. or not show up for you? That's such a terrific question because, you know, for me, it was 
almost shocking and in some ways horrifying to see the other David, the person that I hadn't fallen in love with. There was one day when we were planning a lunch and he came to pick me up at the television station. And I remember him getting out of his car and the way in which he was walking toward the television station looked so dark to me. His shoulders were hunched, his head was down, his entire being seemed like it was weighed down with some enormous weight that I couldn't access. And then the moment he saw me waiting for him in the parking lot, he straightened up to that David that I fell in love with. The magical, funny, just so warm human being. As his illness progressed, he actually got to the point where he was acting on a lot of the behaviors he must have been feeling internally, where he would yell. He became enraged at the smallest thing. When things didn't work out with a client, he would hang up the phone and he would swear these awful swear words in front of our daughter. He became so impulsive and he would act on his impulsivity. His eating habits completely changed. He, he went from really caring about what he ate and being very mindful of what he ate to eating microwaved pies every night. It was almost like an obsession, an OCD type experience where there was only one thing that could feed this hunger that he had. I ended up finding out about several affairs he, because his sexual proclivity had just gone you know, out of control. He didn't ever have the kind of irrational spending thing, but almost every side of the swing toward mania he was experiencing in those latter months of his life. And it was horrifying for me to witness because what I realized is that for most of his life, he had likely either managed those compulsions, those behaviors, or the stress was so insane at that point in his life, he had no choice. He was just acting completely irrationally. And I think this is something we're going to talk about later about the misconceptions of, and I believe this is shifting, but how the perception of what it quote unquote looks like to be mentally ill, right? For so long, it was the homeless person on the street. But I think it's important that you paint a picture of, we talk about these two different Davids, but about how the external world is experiencing your family, the snapshot of your family, your career, his career, Mm -hmm. your daughter, versus the reality of the walls of your home and what you're witnessing. Well, I will say there was one, and it's still a very confusing thing to me about mental illness, is that he would have several months where he was stable, where he was loving, He was back doing the activities with our daughter that he loved to do. And then something would shift either internally or externally. And he would go into these darker moods, the deep depression that he he described it as really being unable to move and move forward on projects that he need to. He stopped billing his clients. To the outside world, I'm still going to work. I'm the number one radio host in Portland, Oregon. I'm hosting events. We're showing up together at parties, even though at those parties, he would always excuse himself and go off in a corner and read. And so there was there was this holding it together for him that I'd say, looking back, I think he was probably really holding it together for almost five years, that he was struggling very much against the interior of his mind and not enjoying the life that we were living at all. I mean, we had separated. We lived in separate bedrooms. I would take my daughter for a week at a time. He would take my daughter because we had just decided that it was almost intolerable for us to live within the marriage in this way where he actually wasn't participating anymore. And then all of a sudden he would say, I really want to be married. I really want to work on this. Come back upstairs. Let's try it. And we would do that in and out of the marriage so many times. It was just maddening. But I had this experience that was really my at my core, Kimmy, which was, I want my daughter to be raised by a father. I want a father to love her, to show her what it means to have masculinity in her life. I want a male figure loving her. And so I just stayed. Your daughter, Sophie, what kind of 
father was he to Sophie? He was consistently, I don't know what this says about bipolar. He was consistently beautiful. He was consistently patient. He was always, always just so, just completely lighting up when he saw her. And it was only probably in the last six weeks of his life where the quality of his brain was so spent that he couldn't even really recognize that he was yelling around her and yelling at her and and really had lost that loving touch that he was so known for. And one of the reasons, and I'm so excited to talk to you today, and as I really thought about it, we could dedicate a whole episode, but this notion of what it means to be a, a caretaker or in a relationship with somebody who is living with a unmanaged, undiagnosed mental illness or any mental mental illness for that matter, whether there's a diagnosis and treatment involved. And you think about physical ailments, right? Somebody having a spouse, you know, with, with cancer, there now is discussion about the impact on the caretaker. But I'm curious as you're very successful in your career, in your community, you're a mother, what, you know, as that's is happening and his, you know, these behaviors as a result of the health of his brain and how are you experiencing it? What impact or emotional toll is it taking on you? Well, first of all, I was so exhausted, you know, because I was working at a radio station at the time. And I think I was at that point, I don't know if I was working morning or nights, but I I have a full-time job. I have the full-time responsibility of my daughter because what did happen to him as he went on was that he would become very confused with her appointments or when she needed to be picked up or when she had a birthday party. And so I would often compensate for that, just thinking he's overwhelmed, he has too much going on. So I felt physically exhausted by it. I also had the experience that I couldn't separate when he was just being an asshole with what was happening with his brain because he had never said to me, I feel like my brain isn't functioning. He had never said, I fear I have a mental illness. In fact, when I said, this seems like it could be something you should talk to a psychologist about, he would just get enraged, really was offended by the idea that he could be suffering from a mental illness. And so my experience always was a little bit of being gaslit, like, I don't think this is normal. I don't think what's happening is normal. And him telling me, you're the problem. If you did this more, if you didn't work as many hours, you know, I'm the person who is holding this together. And so there was, it was crazy making. It was completely crazy making. And it's only, you know, this many years later, after being in a really loving, stable relationship where someone helps you, where they assist you, do I realize the chaos that I was living in and how much I was taking on? There was this circumstance that happened that my sister always reminds me of where she had come to stay with me. And in the morning as everyone's leaving for work, I said, you know, I'll I'll pick up dinner. And David said, no, no, I'll pick up dinner. I'm happy to get it. I'll grab a roast chicken on the way back. And my sister and I had been out for a drive and I said, I need to stop and get that roast chicken. She said, yeah, but he said he was going to do that. And I said, oh, no, no, he never does what he says he's going to do. And she was like, do you understand how awful that is? How, how just like, how crazy making that is? And it really was, it, our lives really were falling apart if I depended upon him. So I just did it all. You've talked about this moment where you came home from work and he's looking out the window with a pad and a paper. Can you share this story with me? I know in hindsight, it was a really eye-opening, pivotal moment, if you will. Yeah, I was working a night shift and our daughter was probably, I don't know, three or four months old. And I had come home early, or I think it might've been on my dinner break, but he was standing against the window pane, looking out at a street. And, it, and honestly, it was not a busy street. We were probably two blocks away from the most busy thoroughfare. And he had a yellow pad. 
And every time that a car came by, he would mark it down. And he had all these erratic marks on this yellow pad. And I walked in the door and he showed this thing to me. And he said, see, do you see what it's like to live in this house with all this traffic? I can't, I can't take it anymore. Do you see how this is, what this is doing to me? And I was like, whoa, I didn't. I mean, it is astounding to me now, Kimmy, knowing what I know about the sensory overload that people with mental illness have that I didn't know in that moment that he was mentally ill. I still didn't realize he was mentally ill. I just thought he was super sensitive to light and sound. And so I said, well, we can move. Once again, instead of insisting that he get some sort of professional help, I was like, if he hates it here, let's move but we moved five times in the time that I was married to him, five times, because there was always something like that that was wrong. And in hindsight, instead of moving, I guess, knowing what you know now about the illness, addressing obviously the real issue, right? Which yeah. is the mental health and not the traffic. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> this is why it's always fascinating. It almost feels like I'd write a completely different book now. I think that every time that I enabled further behavior by saying, we'll move or I'll pick her up or I'll buy the chicken, it just allowed his illness to get worse. And in talking to his therapist, you know, they think he probably had one of his most profound traumas when he was nine and had probably struggled with mental illness since he was nine years old. And I keep thinking like, what if I had just caught him earlier by saying no? If you don't get help, if you don't actually do something to really address the issues that you're having, I need to leave this marriage. We might have caught him. And I get really emotional thinking about that because once again, it's like the the amount of responsibility that we can carry for another person's mental illness is pretty profound. But it would be like seeing someone whom you love whittle away their weight they're not eating, they're sleeping a lot and not forcing them to go to the doctor. You know, there is this bizarre thing around mental health where there's this combination of us actually not knowing the signs and symptoms that we should be looking for and also our unwillingness to believe that this could be happening within our own marriages. And so, of course, there had to have been a lot of my own resistance to this to say, I don't want this nightmare to be a mental illness. There had to be some part of me that had a sense that there was something other than just him being really obstinate and an ass (laughs) to me that was going on. And I didn't want to look at it either. Yeah, and I think it's, it's a really complicated thing with mental illness to separate the person from the illness, right? And these behaviors and actions. And as you said, this hypersexualization and taking risk-taking that, you know, resulted in affairs, is that the moral character or of this man that I fell in love with and married, or are these symptoms of an illness, right? And And I do think that is really hard to sift out, right? There's nothing easy about that. I don't think, you know, the most profound learned experts in brain science, in psychotherapy, all of the people that I talk to about this question of how do we know whether it's the illness or the behaviors of a human being who's doing whatever the fuck he wants. That is the question around mental illness and none of them can answer it. They really cannot because there is a, it's a very like kind of pat answer. Well, that's the illness. That's not your husband. Really? Or is it because there was a part of him that was just pissed off and wanted to actually be a very selfish person in that moment? I still don't know the answers. I still don't know if it's 50-50. I don't know if it's 70-30. I don't know. I won't ever know. It also, I think, can sort of rob you of the opportunity to be (laughs) mad, pissed, hurt. You know, if if the expectation is, well, this is an illness, so I can only show up in this sort of compassionate, empathetic way. I don't know that it gives you permission to have rage and hurt and all of those things that come as a result of those behaviors, regardless of what the origin of the behavior is. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. 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 Eventually, you know, I think it's important to say during this entire time, he is 
undiagnosed. He is not on treatment. So there's no medication or therapy or even, you know, diagnostics as to what is happening. Mm. But eventually he does get diagnosed. I'm curious, and you're speaking to a lot of them now, but sort of the tipping point, the series of events that lead to him getting the diagnosis. You know, I think one one of the tipping points for me and just knowing that my marriage had, had ended was that our daughter was at this really beautiful Montessori and we had this community of people around her who just adored her. And she was really, really good at art. And the art teacher had taken a, a huge interest in her and a, had asked her to stay after school for individualized art lessons. And I kind of felt like that that world was a buffer for she and I, that it wasn't going to be sullied by whatever behavior David was bringing into it. And I got a phone call from the school administrator that said that he had asked her art teacher out. And I was so upset that it really, it really just pushed me to the point where I knew that I needed to separate or divorce. And I told him one day when he was coming up the stairs again an hour late to take her to a birthday party and I needed to be kicking off a big concert in the public square in Portland and I was already late. I told him that I was leaving him and he collapsed. He fell to the floor completely unconscious. We went by ambulance to the hospital. We spent three days in the hospital with every single imaginable test run And we walked out of there without a diagnosis, without any idea why he had collapsed. And only now do I realize that the admitting physician actually suspected it was bipolar disorder and didn't say a word to me. I know one of the doctors had said he carried off one of the biggest psychological frauds he had ever witnessed. Can you explain that statement, you know, what what that means, why, you know, the origin of, of that observation and when he does, ultimately, you do get the you do get the answer that you know it sounds like that one doctor knew but did not communicate or share sadly, yeah, I think you know once again, in the same way that David turned on this unbelievable charisma in that coffee shop, he was able when under the questioning of a physician to turn on his intellect and his charisma and answer all the right questions. And he obviously knew something about Oregon law, which was that he shouldn't say he's at a risk to himself or others, because in Oregon, you can't be committed unless you are at a risk to yourself or others. He knew enough about how to answer those types of questions. And even when he made his first attempt, he did the same thing, which was, I know what to say and I got out of that. I've always been really good at taking tests. There was a little bit of arrogance in his refusal both to admit the path that he was going down and also his arrogance in thinking, and I actually have outsmarted these doctors. So you've, you've mentioned the first attempt at taking and ending his life. I know there's a second attempt that finally leads to a diagnosis and some clarity around what this is. Can you share with me that time in those series of events? Yeah, the first time he, and I do want to just preface this by saying one of the ways that David attempted to deal with his worsening quality of his mind was by talking to a physician friend and saying, I need some help sleeping. And the physician gave him antidepressants, which really put him into a terrible state. He was um, rapid cycling. He was unable to sleep for almost 14 days. I think he lost 18 pounds like over the course of several weeks. And that was when his first attempt happened was when he was in that sort of manic point. He said, I just knew that I wanted to end this feeling. And he very haphazardly tried to saw his, his wrist. And it was definitely sort of that suicidal curiosity, I think. They wouldn't admit him then, uh, which just completely floored me. But the second time he went to his girlfriend's property up in Mount Hood and he had a gun. He shot off the gun several times. He put his head in her gas oven and attempted to try to start the gas oven. The neighbors were the people, I think, that called the police and that's when they committed him. His original diagnosis was depression, 
And then when another psychiatrist actually did his psychological history, they saw that it was um, bipolar two, which made much more sense to me that he had operated at this level that was a little hypomanic most of his life, a lot of irritability. And it was only when he'd had that super, super deep depression after the death of his dad that we began to see the real extent of just how sick he was. And so after he was diagnosed with bipolar, they tried probably 13 different medications. I mean, the amount of different mood stabilizers and SSRIs, and they rolled out the entire truck on him, but he never responded well. He had had hepatitis from traveling the world in Africa and his liver didn't process psychopharmaceuticals very well. And I think that's part of the reason nothing really worked for him, but he just grew more and more despondent in psychiatric care. And I'd also just say, Kimmy, that they didn't at that time really believe in kind of hope for recovery for a person with uh, as serious a bipolar presentation as his. And they kind of told him that his illness was only going to get worse, that he would probably be better off if he didn't continue to have custody of Sophie because, you know, raising kids is awfully stressful, that he should quit his job. And I think if there was any kind of hope left in David, he he ended up losing it in, you know, that six weeks that he was in inpatient care. Yeah, you know, when you and I first spoke, you brought that up and that, you know, it was one of the questions I had. And I'm, I'm glad that you brought it up on your own, this role of hope in the loss of his life. And that had there been a different narrative, had he been provided the gift of hope, that, you know, the doctors looked at him and said, you know, we have hope for your future. We have hope for your health and we're going to find the right solutions that perhaps it would have been a different experience for him and a different outcome for him. And I think that's a really important message for anybody who's who's suffering about the power of hope. Mm. And the other thing that you said, which we don't have to go into, but it's a really important point about how truly deadly and dangerous antidepressants are for somebody who has bipolar disorder. And there could be a very generalized assumption, well, if they're depressed, they should be on antidepressants. And can you briefly explain, I know the answer, but I would love for you to explain it about why that is such a risky endeavor. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's interesting now. There's just there's an organization formed of people who've lost their loved ones to suicide after they were put on antidepressants and it was likely they also had bipolar pass and were just put on the wrong thing. It it puts people into this state of akathisia, which is uh, I mean, he described it as Dante's ninth circle of hell. He felt skin crawling, he was agitated, he moved in a way that was jerky and not at all fluid. He stopped sleeping. At one point, it was almost like I was, you know, a figure in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest where he would go between laughing to falling down on his knees and crying. He never really got out of that state until they subdued him so heavily with sedatives that he was just like a big log, you know. It is because of the unique biochemistry of people with bipolar disorder that that antidepressants are not just dangerous, they're deadly. They're completely deadly. And I think there should be a black box warning on them that if you ever suspected a history of bipolar, do not take them until somebody's taken a psychological background. I think four out of every six medications that are written are written by a nurse practitioner or a physician who has never done any kind of like extensive psychological background check on the person. And so, you know, it's like we're playing Russian roulette with people's lives. And I don't know if you've had a similar experience with with antidepressants, but it sent him into, you know, his highest high and then his lowest low. And they always say the risk of suicide is highest when people are rapid cycling because it is so profoundly unsettling to the person experiencing it. Yes, because it is not a major depressive order. It's a different illness and it requires different treatment. And especially if you have a propensity to move into manic or mania and, you know, they put you on something that shoots you up in that direction, you're, it's dangerous. Six weeks later, you would 
lose David and Sophie would lose her father. What can you tell me or, you know, what are you comfortable sharing about that day? Sophie and I were attempting to try to see him as much as we possibly could in in patient care. And at a certain point, I think when he kind of started losing all hope, he asked not to see us anymore. And his family had agreed that it would be best if we didn't come around him. And so he had been dispatched to his mom's care. And his mom was actually taking care of him the night that he vanished. And he called me, I think it was the night before he was released. And he said to me, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for being Sophie's mom and giving me this beautiful daughter. And there's a place for you in heaven. And it was such a tender, unbelievably present conversation. I thought it was odd. But I just said, you know, it's going to be okay and we're going to get you back on your feet and I think you're going to be just fine and work will be there. And he just said, I just want you to hear these words. I just want you to hear these words. Thank you. And the next morning, I went over to the house where he was supposed to be staying to kind of help him get up and see whether or not there was something that we could do because Sophie was going to come over later than the day. And I woke up his mother and she had overslept and he was gone. And we noticed that the keys to the truck were also gone. And I don't know how the woman he was staying with at that time got my number or managed to find me, but she told me that she'd seen his car outside her her house uh, up in the Columbia Gorge. And so we immediately drove up there and I met this woman, you know, who was like a, just a complete foreign figure to me who told me that she had seen in his car that there was, you know, a bottle of vodka and there was some belongings and that she feared that he was dead. And for nearly, I don't know, it was, uh, so that was like the end of October early November, they didn't find his body until December 15th. He was missing. It was a horrible winter storm that year. And they had grid searches every single day, assuming that that's probably what had happened to him is that he died by suicide. But the Columbia River Gorge is one of the most beautiful, wild places in the world. And at a certain point, the snow was too much for the searchers to continue. And so they ended up calling it off. And we we were living in this state of complete and horrible limbo. I mean, we did not know for sure what had happened to him. And I knew in my heart of hearts that he died by suicide. I knew it. I, I just, I don't know, I had a knowing. And so I think it was December 15th. I, Sophie and I had invited some friends over for dinner and we were sitting around a fire and, you know, everybody else was getting ready for Christmas and We'd done nothing and the phone rang and this sheriff told me that they'd found his body. And the sheriff was so kind and he was so he was so present when he said, I need you to know that he looked like he was at peace. He said, we find so many people up here who cannot take their lives anymore and they come to this place because it's desolate, but he was under a tree and he was looking out at a a beautiful river, and he really did look like he was at peace. And I just, um, I went back into the room and I had prepared myself. I'd done a lot of research about what you should do with children when you suspect suicide or suicide has happened. And and what they had always advised was tell them the truth. And so I I pulled Sophie in and I just, I um, held her cheeks between my hands. And I said, we agreed that it was going to be better one way or the other if we knew what had happened to daddy, right? And she said, yes. And I said, he's dead, sweetheart. And, you know, Sophie always has like immediate access to her emotions. She is so extraordinary that way. And she just let out this grieving wail that was just, it's still just pierces my memory because it was so profound how a child could know so much about what that meant for her life and what that meant for her 
for her entire future right in that moment. And I, you know, I think that's the day, Kimmy, where I was just like, I'm in the wrong business. I'm doing the wrong thing. I have, you know, spent my life focusing on hard news and other people's troubles. And here I completely just missed the story of my husband's unfolding mental illness. And I felt so much guilt and so much shame and so much just complete regret. And how old is Sophie at this time? She was nine. You have me crying too over here, by the way. No. When someone loses someone by suicide, and, and you just spoke to this, a very specific type of grief, the layers of trauma, can you explain and articulate how complex that, that grief and loss are for people who lose the people they love to suicide? You know, there's so much of it that's self-inflicted, Kimmy, and then there's actually an awful lot of it that's inflicted by our society's response to suicide because people don't see it as the public health crisis that they is. They, they see it as like a, a selfish person who did a selfish act, who did something unspeakable and brought incredible shame upon his family. And I was so offended by people's reaction to our trauma, my daughter's loss of the man she will always love the most in her life. And, you know, I've often talked about how when you lose someone to a heart attack or, or cancer, immediately there's all of these, you know, casseroles and people doing food chains and all of the notes and flowers. And when someone dies by suicide, there is this big void. People actually don't know what to say, so they don't say anything at all. And as a person grieving that loss, I think that what you want to hear from people is just what you want to hear. If you lose a person any other time, you want to hear funny stories about them. You want to hear how generous they were. You want to hear memories of your loved one that remind you of what a capable, fun human being they were. And because of the act, which people believe is a willing act, not one that is you know, the kind of madness that we now know was overtaking his mind, you miss out on that. And all of the, you know, what you talk about, the what ifs and the going back in time and yeah, which, you know, is it that self-inflicted piece as you, as you shared? I think, you know, there's probably always a what if, you know, when you, when someone's diagnosed with an illness, you're always like, what if I had made them go to the doctor sooner? What if I had, but with suicide, it is combined with the why. Why would someone end their life? I mean, it's only now, and I've been doing this kind of work and research 13 years that I truly have a glimpse into the tortured nature of a mind of someone who is, has suicidal ideation. And that's only because I have made it my, my job, my full-time job to study, to talk with suicide attempt survivors to understand sort of the science behind suicidology. I'm deeply, deeply interested in, in it. And it's, you know, one guy said to me, if you were in a burning building, would you jump or would you be burned? That's what you have to understand about a person who is in that much psychological pain that they don't really see any other option than moving away from the pain. So the process of rebuilding your life Obviously, caring for Sophie and her loss, your own grief. I know huge debt financially. There's realities that become real quickly. So so what does that chapter look like? You know, I was just talking with a friend about this because she was saying, how long did you take to grieve? And I was thinking back and I was like, grief? I didn't have time for my own grief. I had to make sure I kept a job, first of all, because I was so worried about our future together for my daughter and I as a newly single mom with a lot of debt. I didn't have time to attend to my own grief because I was so worried about my daughter who was really actually going through the grief in very like um, open swings between kicking and screaming and mourning openly the loss of her dad to now I want to go to a birthday party. I want to be normal. You need to help me get out and be back and 
my school. So I was really focused on her. And also the chaos that David had left because of his mismanagement of his company, because his bills hadn't been paid, because there were creditors that were coming after me. The IRS was calling, the phone company was calling, the unpaid nature of his life all caught up with me. And so I was really trying desperately to hold it together. And I finally started seeing the physical symptoms of that kind of stress where my hair was falling out and I'd lost a ton of weight and I was just not doing well physically. And I ended up going to an acupuncturist and I said, I feel like I'm dying. I feel physically like I'm dying. And she inserted the first needle in my neck and I had the experience of grief flooding throughout my body. I began sobbing and I didn't stop sobbing for two hours after that. And it was almost as if it was a physical relief for what I had been putting off for all those weeks after he died. And this realization, as as you so eloquently <laughs> shared that, you know, you had been covering other people's stories and in fact, you know, felt that you had missed the story of your husband and his suffering from mental illness. So your career obviously is in journalism and storytelling, as is mine. And I know that that comes with people who are deeply and innately curious about the human experience. Mm. But you really shift, you're obsessed, right? With really understanding, to some extent, the, the pieces of the puzzle and putting together the puzzle of your past, but really deeply, deeply researching bipolar disorder, what that means for the person living with it and for the people who love that person. So explain to me that shift, that journey, that process, sort of encapsulate for us what what that looks like as you go on this quest of knowledge and understanding and answers. You know, one of the things, Kimmy, that's really interesting is I... um, I, during this time, honestly, was so worried about money that I couldn't even get therapy. I was so worried about how will I make the mortgage? How will I make my daughter's private school education? And so I started writing and I didn't realize I was writing as a form of therapy, right? And so for the first few weeks, I'm Googling what causes suicide. I mean, it's very basic type of questions, right? And then I started understanding how prevalent suicide is that is the ninth leading cause of death, that is the you know, number one leading cause of death for young men, that it is so completely common in our society to have people attempt. I mean, I don't know if your listeners know this, but for every one completed suicide, there's 25 attempts. It's millions of people impacted by this problem. And so I thought this is a more important story than anything that I've been doing. So even as I was still keeping my full-time job, every like minute that I had available, I became a mental health reporter. And I just started writing about, this is my experience. This is what I went through. This is how it happened for us. But here is the experience for millions of Americans who don't have access to this information. Here's what you should know about common signs and symptoms of bipolar disorder, of depression. Here's what you do if you have someone you love. And so I tried to alternate the chapters of my life of what the the real experience of loving someone with a mental illness had been like with true resources for people. And I know you have written about the moments, right? We talk about in hindsight and going back in time and and mapped out some of these moments and, and said there are certain that are particularly painful because you believe had the conversation happened or happened differently that that yeah. you may be, in fact, still married to David and that yeah. we wouldn't be having this conversation. So with the impetus of the answer being information or inspiration for other people who are perhaps worried or maybe even just kind of have that inkling or maybe a small intuition that somebody they love is suffering, if you can share sort of some of those moments and how you now look back and, and how you would you know, frame them differently. I mean, I just think back to that very early posture that he had of that doom that he was carrying around. I I think 
even in that moment, if I'd been more inquisitive about what's hurting you, what is the source of what you're carrying? I really noticed that when you were walking up here, you appeared to be deeply, deeply distressed by something. What's going on? And, you know, I I can replay 11 of those instances, Kimmy, in the early times that we were dating where, oh, why didn't I ask? Why didn't I push? But I mean, I would only just say to people, if you have a hunch, if you have a concern, follow it, obsess it, make sure that you don't dismiss it because they tell you they're all right. Yeah. And I think we touched on it earlier, but this casting of mental health and and what our perceptions of what it means to be somebody with a mental illness. And for so long, you know, you wrote, you know, the connotation is homeless or, you know, rocking back and forth. I always thought, you know, part of my shame and fear around bipolar, every time I watched Homeland, I was really triggered because of the role of Carrie. And I just thought, well, if I share it, people will think I'm like Carrie on Homeland and that isn't how I am, you know? And I, yeah. and I was afraid that I would be aligned with the portrayals. And yeah. I do think it's important. David was a successful businessman. You know, he was married. Oh, yeah. You know, he had, you know, a beautiful family, a successful wife, you know, a young daughter. And I think that's shifting now. But if you can speak to that, you know, statistically, so hopefully you and I together can help break that down, break down that stigma, that shame, and that casting that results in shame and secrecy. I've always said that if every person who actually had a diagnosis of bipolar disorder came out and um, actually was honest about their diagnosis and how they're managing it, we would see half of corporate America. The reason being is that bipolar too makes you really expansive. It gives you a ton of energy. It has you know, the properties of a very successful person to be able to run the way that David ran. A lot of that came from the way his brain worked. And I just recently spoke to a very successful consultant. She's 53. She works for the biggest brands in the world. And she said, I have decided to tell my story about living with bipolar disorder because of the very thing you mentioned. She's tired of the portrayal of bipolar disorder being the person with their head in their hands. It's not. There are so many very capable people just as David was when he walked in that coffee shop, who actually have this this disorder and they manage it very, very well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And you're right, you know, the energy, the creativity, the sort of constantly active, restless mind um, can serve you in lots of ways. And it also can be celebrated because it's often productive, creative. And yes, I agree. There's There's a lot of people... I would say entrepreneurs, you know, leaders, artists who live with this illness and don't talk about it. Yeah. I mean, at one point I did a a search on how many historical figures have bipolar and I figured that almost every author I've ever loved has, almost every artist that I've ever loved had. There is so many scientists who will now admit to the the fact that they've been diagnosed with this kind of neurodivergence and I I just really feel like, you know, the poet Mary Carr said to me once, it's as if if you're given enough bandwidth to be that creative and that smart, you're also given the bandwidth to suffer the extremes of mental health. And I thought that was beautifully put because I do think there's a correlation. I know it's very, you know, people will debate all day long if it actually causes people to be more creative. I think it's the other way around. I think the bandwidth of people who actually feel poetry and can create science and are brilliant at math also sets them up for a vulnerability toward mental illness. And you've really committed your work and your life to sharing your story and sharing David's story. So do you find that process to be cathartic or what's, I guess, what role does it play for you? Certainly it appears, you know, from the outside to be much more healthy approach than stuffing it all away and never talking about it again. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think the biggest thing that I really wanted to do was to make Sophie proud of who her dad was. I mean, he was such an extraordinary man and he he really had a life of love for her. And I didn't want her to forget that in 
the shame of of how he died. Part of what I was reacting to was I think we got there because of the secrecy and stigma surrounding conditions of mental health. And I was just like, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to make people uncomfortable if I have to, to actually talk about this because we have to eradicate the stigma of mental illness. And over the years, I think that just seeing the conversation shift and having the number of people who said to me, you wrote my story is so fulfilling because what you realize is when you're going through a mental health crisis, you think you are completely alone. Like I thought this was the weirdest horror story, unimaginable narrative ever. And I heard from hundreds of families who said the exact same thing happened to us. Different town, different person, but the story was very similar to people and it provided them comfort. And so, you know, I have taken on kind of different parts of sharing the story, becoming really, um, as Sophie says, obsessed about mental health and how we actually prevent serious mental illness. And I, I just feel like it continues to kind of inform me as a journalist that there's always brand new aspects of it because we know so little about the brain and how it's kind of just a new frontier, you know, in terms of our understanding. You do so openly and eloquently and honestly share your story. Is there one question that people are most curious about or is there one question that sort of consistently comes up? I think a lot of people want to know how Sophie is and if the death of her her father impacted her in a way that was so detrimental that her own mental health was lacking. And I would just say, I, I think that maybe my decision to deal with this very openly and to have a, a way for us all to always discuss it hopefully helped in that, but she hasn't focused on it. <laughs> I mean, it was interesting to me that it was kind of like, that's really nice for you to do, mom. I'm not that interested in mental health. I, I want to have my life. I want to, you know, do my sports. I want to become a, she, she's a wonderful singer songwriter. She has incredible intellectual capacity, just like her dad. She is one of the kindest human beings I've ever met in her life, but she does not focus on her dad's death. I think she has such a really profound way of honoring the life that he lived and his choice, which was really interesting to me that she said, you know, he envisioned for himself a life under a bridge and seriously mentally ill. And if you also believe that and you had such extreme pain in your brain, I can understand making that choice. She actually is has evolved past me in terms of her understanding around what her dad's decision was to end his life. And so I think she's completely acclimated to it. And I have never known Sophie to go through extreme therapy on the issue of her dad's suicide. She hasn't done the kind of reading or deep sort of trying to understand bipolar disorder. She is living in the here and now. She lives for the life that she has right now, which is like, I think probably the greatest legacy that any person could ever leave for his daughter. And that was when her dad was the most healthy, was the way he lived so presently and so profoundly in the moment. And so she has that wonderful, wonderful quality of of just truly being present to the gifts of life. So I hope that answered the question that I think everybody has (laughs) about how she's doing. Where are you in your life today? I have a partner that I've been with now for the past four and a half years, and he is this grounding, stable force in my life. I call him basalt uh, because he's like the firmest rock, you know, the most dense, beautiful, calm human being for me. And um, I feel like because I, three years ago, decided to start moving my interest in mental health into the workplace that I'm just really positioned quite well because what we're finding now is that workplaces, because everything kind of, we dropped the doors between home and work and everybody can see into our lives that these mental health concerns are starting to show up 
tremendously in the workplace. And a recent Harvard Business Review study of 3,700 workers showed that 89% of people say their mental well-being has really declined during the pandemic. And we absolutely can't expect people to continue to perform like they did under the stress and crisis of the pandemic. And so how do we actually bring in awareness into the workplace? How do we give people kind of coping skills? That's really where a lot of my interest in now, because I want to move into the sort of prevention part of serious mental illness. I want to catch people sort of upstream of really the worst behaviors and the worst type of the illness that that you really can't claw back from. Yeah. Giving them the tools so they don't ever have to go yeah, to the brain. Yeah. When you share your story, like you just did with me so beautifully, what do you hope people take away, the greatest takeaways that you would like for people to experience when they hear your story? Just one human being at a time. I want people to understand how common these conditions are, how disruptive to our lives they are, how like destabilizing a force it is in society that we can't talk openly about it and feel like, well, at least there's this woman in Portland, Oregon who is, you know, that's really important to me, Kimmy. I just, I care about that one person who has felt like, I don't know who to talk to about this. That really moves me. Well, Sheila, thank you so much for making the time. And I will thank our dear friend, Hannah, who introduced us And I will also connect the dots that 20 years ago when I married my husband, Graham, we had a ring bearer named Blake Parrish, who is now the love of Sophie's life. So your daughter and my ring bearer are now happily in love. (laughs) (laughs) What a perfect ending to the story. What a perfect (laughs) ending to the story. And I will say... You talk about someone who met their match in terms of kindness and intellect and love of life. Wow. I just, from the moment I met Blake, fell so deeply in love with him. I honestly feel like if there's any kind of way that life works out for us so we get to see the love that we wish we could have created, it just occurred to me like I witness it between those two mm-hmm. all the time. Well, to Sophie and to Blake and um, Blake's mom, Hannah, who who brought us together here today. Oh, Kimmy, I've enjoyed this so much. So, so much. So we're going to end with a little lightning round, something fun. So real quick, favorite binge-worthy show? I'm watching Succession right now. I think it's phenomenal around the issue of power and family dynamics and origin of family. I think it's really incredible stuff. Yeah, it's great. I'm watching it too. (laughs) If you could have one superpower? I wish I could sing. I really would love to be able to sing. I can't. Sophie has a beautiful voice and she often sings in the car and I just sort of know where I am on the flat scale. (laughs) I don't know if singing is called a superpower, but man, I would love to be able to do it. Dream dinner party. You can invite three people. Who are they? Oh my gosh. This is so hard for me because there's so many authors that, but I, you know, I am so interested in the role of trauma in my life right now that honestly, I think I would probably do like Peter Levine and Bessel van der Kolk and Oprah, you know, and just talk trauma the whole time. Isn't that just like, once again, back to my obsession, oh, you know, I could have Drake over there, but no, I got to have the trauma experts at my dinner table. Oh, terrible. The thing you're most proud of? Oh, my daughter. There's just no question. I'm every single moment so proud of her. And that's perfect because the last question is about your daughter. Your greatest wish for Sophie. I think that I just hope that life works out for her so that she can continue this kind of optimism and presence that she brings to every day right now. I just, I hope that she's kind of delivered a soft landing after everything that she went through. Beautiful. And thank you again. And where can everyone find you? I know you have a podcast. If people want to learn more, read your book, what are are the best places they can follow you? I always love it when people buy the book at independent bookstores, but I know, I think it's probably Amazon who has it. All the things we never knew is the title. And um, the podcast is called Beyond Well. It's a 
It's a public facing podcast that's free and we offer these kind of tools that we've been talking about for people. But if you run a company and you're a person who believes like I do that we should be talking about mental health from the company, just please reach out to me via any of those links because we're doing a lot of managerial training now and a lot of real good skill building in companies. And I could imagine there's someone in your audience that said like, my people are hurting, what do we do? We have an amazing team of five doctors who work for me and they all just, they're extraordinary. And so I hope especially that if there's somebody listening who would like to have a more kind of open and and upbeat conversation about mental health in the workplace that they reach out. Wonderful. And we will link to everything in the show notes. So thank you again, Sheila. I know we'll meet in person someday soon and I really look forward to it. Thank you, Kimmy. It's been really wonderful. Today's episode with Sheila supports Lines for Life. Lines for Life is a nonprofit based in Oregon working on the front lines of substance abuse and suicide prevention. You can find them at linesforlife.org. Show notes to this episode can be found on our website at allthewiserpodcast.com. And if you don't already, I hope you'll consider following us on Instagram at allthewiserpodcast. Thank you always for listening and take care of yourself and one another. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Tara Daigle. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.